0: My name's Jesse. It's great to see uh, so many faces that I don't know. Welcome uh, to all of those who are visiting and to those who are back from Alabama. Uh, It's great to see all of you. Now, when uh, Toby first gave me a topic to speak on this morning, it was this. How to be a Christian while you're not in church. Now, from the very start, I I don't want you to hear... You know, Toby's frustration, you know, all those folk at the Kingdom Vineyard, they're all very fine Christians on a Sunday, but, you know, the rest of the week, there's some work to be done. Uh, No, no, that's not what we're saying at all. What I do want uh, you to hear is this, that while we're here together in church, while we gather on a Sunday, we're very intentionally going about creating an environment where we actively pursue the presence of God, where um, our primary concern is a meeting, uh, we, we say on our materials and we mean it, that we're looking for a real meeting with God and a real meeting with one another. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so we're we're here to... Uh, to encounter him. We're here to express our devotion to him, and we're also here to encourage one another, to build one another up, and express our unity as the body of Christ. But unless you're some kind of uh, freakish super-Christian, those aren't the goals that are at the forefront of your mind in the kind of day-to-day, nitty-gritty of your lives if you're in the office and you're looking you're trying to understand a complicated document or uh, you're at home and you're taking the bins out and uh bin juice runs down your arm you know and the the first thought in your mind is not my redeemer lives you know <laughs> um uh eternity rests in your hand you know those aren't my first thoughts anyway you know maybe maybe uh i'm just i've just got a lot more work to do but um you know the... the There are moments where you feel grateful that you have a job, that you have a home, that you have a car. You know, those moments aren't when you fork out all the money that associates with those things, but you have money with which to do those things, so you're grateful. But on the whole, most of our uh, conscious minds are uh, occupied with just the stuff that goes with those things. So what does it mean to be a Christian in those moments and in those places and with those People, Is there anything distinctive about how a Christian ought to react to binge juice running down their arm? I wonder. What I'm hoping to do uh, this morning is, uh, on the one hand, incredibly uh, practical, and on the other hand, incredibly spiritual, um, because it has to do with both who we are and the things that we do. These are the two major things I'm going to be talking about this morning. Our identity as Christians and our vocation as Christians. So who we are and what we do. And I hope that by the end of this talk I'll have uh, helped in some way to to reimagine our lives. Not as kind of like segments, like in an orange, but more like a milkshake. You know, everything just blended up. Our lives with the Holy Spirit infiltrating every other part of our lives, our work life, our home life, our leisure life, and all of those things. Because worship in its broadest sense is giving our entire lives over to God and devoting them to him. We are going to look at the Bible. So if you do have Bibles, uh, we're going to have a look first at First um, Peter chapter 2. There's always a danger uh, when talking on a a topic rather than working systematically through a section of the Bible, that we fish around in the Bible to find things to support our uh, pre-existing con, uh, uh, positions. And that's, that's what we call proof texting. But uh, it's a method by which you can pretty much justify anything you like. Um, but my problem uh, for this weekend was um, settling on a scripture because I found that wherever I turned, the whole thing, Was relevant, Um, but I am under authority. So, if I ever sort of say something completely out of context, I will be brought up on charges of uh, proof texting. So, uh, don't worry. But really, this is an important book for you guys to read. Uh, So, so it's up to you. So, it's 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 up to you to hold me to to account as well. But let's begin in uh, one Peter chapter two. I'm going to read from uh, one to twelve. Uh, Before we start, actually, there's a therefore in there. The therefore is uh, the um, preceding verse in the earlier chapter, which says, this is the good news that was preached to you. And last week, we were talking about evangelism and the preaching of the gospel. So because of the gospel, rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice or guile, insincerity, envy, and slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him who is a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe he is precious but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So just to give you um, a context uh, for Peter's letter here, broadly speaking, uh, for the early evangelists, there were two groups of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And Gentile was basically a term that meant a non-Jew, and it probably covers most, if not all, of us uh, today, even though once I had a pint of beer thrown over me because somebody thought I was Jewish and I didn't know. So, never mind. Uh, so, so Peter, or Rocky as I like to call him, um, is doing a strange thing here as he's speaking to uh, Christians because he's still drawing a distinction uh, between Jews and Gentiles, and I would contend that in a in a really important way that we need to grasp as Christians what he 's doing here is he 's identifying Gentile Christians with Jews Now that doesn 't mean that we all you know that the guys all need to go and get circumcised, and you need to all stop eating bacon. Thank God um, but the point Peter is actually making. Is, is much bigger than that. He's basically saying to everyone in the world, if you believe in Jesus, you're welcomed into a story of a people that have been chosen by God, set apart by God, with a story that goes way back, further than Pentecost and Easter and Christmas and the Maccabean Revolution and all of those things, goes way back, To God's promise to Abraham that he would define a a people by his presence, by his promise. And that this story is now our story. And Peter uh, uses a number of different phrases to, to kind of bring home this sense of identity. He says, You're a living stone in a building. Why don't you all turn to somebody and say, You're a living stone? Good. Now you know. You're a living stone, I presume. He says, uh, we're being built into a spiritual house. Um, and that sometimes means that, you know, if you're a living stone, you're just sort of plonked down next to another living stone. And You might not have chosen that stone, but that's what churches are all about. You know, we're just people uh, rubbing up against other people. And sometimes uh, that can be uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, we get a sense of the big house that God is building. Uh, What else does he say? He says, uh, we are a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to God. In verse 9, it says, we're a chosen race. Again, he says, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation and God's own people. In the King James Version, um, that last bit is translated as a peculiar people which I've always thought of as, as uh, really delightful. Peculiar, when you look it up in the dictionary, it's, it's, um, it's a term that basically just means different to what is normal or expected or sometimes even strange, but something that belongs exclusively to something. So turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're, you're a peculiar person. This is, this, is, this is what we're called to be. We're called to be a peculiar people. And all of these things that Peter is saying uh, are important distinctives of our identity as Christians. And you've really got to kind of dig into the Bible to know more about what those things mean. But for now, I'm just going to summarize three major elements that I see coming out of it. First is that we are chosen And it's not because of anything special that we've done. It's just because God so chooses. And God being God gets to do that. He gets to just choose whomever he likes. But we don't have any qualifications except that God chooses us. The second thing is that we're a people of this promise that God made to Abraham to be a blessing to others. God chose Abraham and established a peculiar people, not so that others would be left out, but so that they would be the means through which others would know him. And the third thing is that we're a priesthood. You might never have thought of yourself as a priest, but that's what being a Christian means. You turn to somebody and say, you're a priest, And what we know about priestly ministry, as the Bible defines it, is uh, that the priests were the people who would mediate. There would be intermediaries between God and the people. And of all the people of Israel, it's interesting that they had no inheritance of land or property. They they owned nothing. They simply looked after the things that God had given us, given them. So as Christians, we're stewards of the things that God has given us. We haven't earned all the things that we own they gifts from God. So those are three things. We're chosen, we're people of the promise, and we're a priesthood. Those are the things that Peter says identify us, but they also speak about our vocation as Christians. They speak about who we are and about what we do. Now, I like... Uh, Breaking down words, looking for the origins of words, which is called etymology, which is different from entomology, which is about studying bugs, which I have no interest in (laughs) at all. Um, I don't know if you know, um, what was his name? Humph. Uh, Humphrey Littleton uh, was a jazz trumpeter, host of uh, Great Radio 4 Show, was once asked if he was an orthonologist. And he said, no, I'm just a word botcher. Sorry, that's a very Radio 4 joke. Anyway, the word vocation vocation has its origins in uh, the Latin for a calling. And in the same way, the Greek word for church, which is ecclesia, means those who are called, those who are called out. So can you see the connections I'm drawing here? There are things uh, about being... um, there are things about our vocation as Christian that have to do with our identity as those whom God calls. They're God's invitation to us to get alongside him and to involve ourselves in the things he is doing. Like Toby said last week, evangelism is essentially something that God is doing that we get to participate in. God has a mission, and we get to involve ourselves in it. And... Uh, to help us understand what it means for our vocational life, the things that we do, uh, to connect that with our faith. Uh, I'm going to draw a lot on the excellent work of a pastor called Tim Keller who wrote a book called uh, Every Good Endeavor. It's connecting our lives of work with God's work. And he says this, Something can be a vocation or calling only if some other party calls you to do it. And you do it for their sake rather than your own. Our daily work can be a calling only if it is reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. And that is exactly how the Bible teaches us to view work. And I really love that because it helps us to imagine all the minutia of our life as worship. It involves everything that we do becoming service to God and to others. And I'm just going to uh, continue with Morton Keller because it's all gold. Christians should be aware of this revolutionary understanding of the purpose of their work in the world. We are not to choose jobs and conduct our work to fulfil ourselves and accrue power. For being called by God to do something is empowering enough. We are to see work as a way of service to God and our neighbour. Remember, Jesus said those two most important commandments were to serve God, to love God, and to love one another. And so we should both choose and conduct our work in accordance with that purpose. So what does it look like to conduct our work in accordance with the purpose of serving God and serving one another? For that, I think we need to look back of uh, Selected another text from the Bible in Jeremiah. So if you have your uh, Bibles or your phones there, turn to Jeremiah. Chapter 29. The later part of this is quite a familiar verse, but I want to read um, verse 1, then skip a bit to verse 4. It's not that it's not important. it's just uh, It's just a lot of background about people and names. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then a lot of stuff about different people, and then verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, said the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. And then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me, if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now you might wonder why I chose this little bit. It's partly because Peter also calls us aliens and exiles. And what he's getting at uh, when he says that is he wants us Christians to uh, understand that the present time that we live in is very much like a life in exile. We're citizens of heaven, but we uh, await a time when heaven will be fully realized in our own experience. So the kingdom of God is something that we see as now and not yet. We see it in part, but not in full. And Jeremiah's message to the exiles is this. While you're there, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat from them, have children, raise them, Work for the good of your city, because what is good for the city is good for you. And anyone who tells you not to do these things is not speaking from God. But understand that this is not a permanent state of affairs. We are exiles now, but there will come a time when God is going to change everything. And we've we've just come out of a, a, a series of teaching on Exodus. And this is what it means to have an Exodus mindset, a sense that... Where we are now is uh, a period of exile. Think about the Israelites in in Egypt. Think about the Israelites in the wilderness. Think about the Israelites in exile in Babylon. That's where we are now. We're waiting for God to bring us up out of exile. Until then build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat from them, have children, and raise them. So is there a particularly Christian way to do these things? Yes. The particularly Christian way to do these things is to do them well. There's um, an author called Dorothy Sayers. He says this, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What she's basically saying there is that we should pursue excellence. We should pursue competence because we're engaging as God's fellow workers in the world, we need to look at the perfection of His work and aim for that. Now we're not always going to get that, but because we're participating in what God is doing, we also not need be despondent when we don't achieve that, because God's perfections are manifest in our own weaknesses. It's in our weakness that God is strong. In his uh, book called "Uncomfortable Growth." Growth," That's my London coming out. <laughs> Uncomfortable Growth." Uh, Rick Williams, who uh, was my pastor when I was in London, uh, talks about spiritual disciplines, but he could just be, just as easily be talking about work when he says this: "Believers grow in Christ-likeness by well-directed effort. Grace is not opposed to effort but it is opposed to earning. Nothing of salvation or transformation is earned. People are saved by grace, but we are not paralyzed by grace. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I planted, another guy called Apollos watered, But God gave the growth, for we are fellow workers of God. You are God's field and God's building. As God's fellow workers, we have stuff that we need to do to cultivate and prepare the ground out of which God's life can grow. God's work is perfect. We see that in the first chapter of Genesis. And so, as our act of worship We must give our absolute best to it. At the same time, the perfection of our work is not the goal. The goal is service to God and service to one another. We also did, uh, just before Exodus, a, a series on the letter to the Colossians. And it says in the letter to Colossians, do everything as for Christ. That doesn't mean when you're taking the bins out and the bin juice is running down your arm, you need to be thinking, eternity rests in your hand. It just means you need to do that, what, do that as best as you can. You need to take the bins out to the best of your ability. You need to uh, review that financial document uh, with... Focus and attention, and applying the mind that God has given you to do that thing the best you possibly can. That is not an unspiritual act. These things are all worship. And God honors you when you do those things. So, to recap, as Christians, we have a particular identity and a particular calling a peculiar calling. Both of these come from God himself, and they're to be part of the kingdom that he is building. Our lives are to be the way that he becomes known to those who don't yet know him. And in the everyday nitty-gritty of life, the main way we do this is by reorienting everything that we do towards worship which is serving God and serving one another. In everything we do, we aim for excellence, but not for its own sake, but because God is worthy of our absolute best in everything. And I'm going to end uh, with a last quote from Tim Keller, in which he endeared himself to me completely because he quoted John Coltrane. Um, And he says this, Your daily work is ultimately an act of worship to the God who called and equipped you to do it no matter what kind of work it is and in the liner notes to his uh, masterpiece a love supreme john coltrane says this beautifully this album is a humble offering to him an attempt to say thank you god through our work even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues may he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor so i encourage you uh especially as uh as we take a a bit of a break over July, to, um, to not see it as a break from worship. Everything that you do, whether it's taking care of your children or mowing your lawn or doing the mundane aspects of your work, those things are honoring to God. They serve the city. When I say the city, I mean the civic community in which we are part and by serving the civic community and their welfare in it we find our own welfare and that is what God calls us to do in this time as church